This is Footy Time with Johnny Raff. It's great to be with you. And with me tonight is Mr. Daniel Andrews. How are we going, Dan? Good, thanks, Johnny. Good to be in as always. And yeah, quite an interesting round I think we have to talk about, although I think we might be going a little bit broader with some of the topics we got on the rundown. We certainly are. And it's uh, starting to get pretty cold in Melbourne, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, May has definitely been cold so far. And uh, yeah, even Melbourne's previous home game, it was a pretty cold one to head to the G and yeah, it takes that little bit more commitment to get to the games at this time of year in Melbourne, I suppose. Yeah. You just got to give that little extra, that 5%. Um, but we'll get stuck right into it because there's a truckload to discuss, as you mentioned, and we're going to start with Carlton. Uh, they just don't seem to take the next step. The Friday night lights, the challenge of a likely top four team it's an occasion that needs rising to, but it all just seemed a bit too much for the Blues as they went down to the Lions 100-74. What's your take on this, Dan? I know we've talked a bit about the Blues this year, but where are they at right now after this defeat? It's really hard to know exactly. Like Looking at it last year, it looked like they were really on the rise and it seemed almost inevitable that they would make the eight this year although a lot of experts didn't actually have them in their top eight. And then, you know, on paper, they've had a relatively easy draw uh, up to this point and it only gets harder from here. But yeah, from what I can tell is some of the stuff we uh, raised in our first conversation of the season sort of seems to be hanging in there about, you know, this sort of inability to really take the game on, being a little bit, little bit conservative, wanting to move the ball with kicking instead of handballing not a lot of forward handball and just inability to hurt teams on turnover, I suppose. So it's kind of slightly strange in a way because if you dig into the stats, a lot of it actually doesn't look that bad, but uh, it's just not quite clicking enough to actually uh, trouble too many of the even, you know, moderately decent oppositions. What's your take? Yeah, I thought this was a big challenge for the Blues and a pass mark that they really needed to get. Uh, but they really just, when the game's on their terms, they look quite good. Uh, but when a good side brings a, a heap of pressure, they just lose the plot. They miss targets. They make bad decisions and they just butcher the ball like there's no tomorrow. Trying to pull off ridiculous kicks that aren't there. And yeah, it's, I think they went 37 minutes between goals from the yeah, second to third quarter. Not going to get the job done, is it? I've heard a few people talking about how they don't seem to be that good at sort of taking away opposition's strengths. They just sort of try and play the game on their terms and sort of, you know, hope that their, you know, better players will get the job done, but they're not necessarily doing a lot to actually negate the opposition. It's almost like they're trying to out-talent the other side. Yeah, I mean, just win those clearances out of the middle, get first use of it, get it to their um, big forwards and... Just go from there. But, you know, we know that in September the game can be played like that, but there's a lot more to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, it's just not quite working. I think they're one of the poorer teams for scoring off turnover. And, you know, in 2023, you've got to be able to hurt the opposition when the 
when you get the turnover and the ground's a little bit more open. So it's so strange though. Like, have you seen marked differences between last year and this year? Like they were doing so much right last year. Obviously they were having, you know, big swings within games where they were in control and when they weren't, but at least they had that capacity to really turn the screws and, you know, put score on the board last year. It seems to have sort of evaded them this year somewhat. Yeah, it's... There's some similarities and I guess there's some things that have just stayed the same. I mean, they don't seem to be able to stop run-ons when the opposition gets up and running. But, yeah, it's 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 really hard to put your finger on exactly what it is uh, other than they just don't quite have the confidence maybe to go the next step and, you know, speed things up, really take the game on. It's strange because they've got a lot of talent there and a lot of guys who can, you know, with good ability – but I would have thought they'd be a bit further ahead at this point of their development. And the big challenge is how can they handle the pressure and the big moments better? Because that's the challenge in front of Michael Voss right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose the bigger question like, is, are they actually performing to expectations? Are they underperforming based on, you know, Voss is like a second year coach and the talent they've got on their list. Would you say they're underperforming? Yeah, look. Originally, I was thinking along the lines of that this this team could be a top four contender. And when you look at it like that, you, you sort of would have to say that they are underperforming. And there's games like these where you'd at least like to see them push at Brisbane all the way. But yeah, maybe does the goal need to be reassessed then with Kelton? Do they just need to make the finals this year? Is is this a journey rather than a, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, it's hard for a team who hasn't made finals for so long to have such high expectations, I think. And, you know, just making finals, I think, for a team who hasn't done it for a while is a big step. And uh, Mm. obviously they fell a couple of times at that final hurdle uh, late last year when they really should have made it. And uh, I don't quite know, you know, whether that's having an effect on their psyche, but it just sort of seems like there's a few facets of their game that aren't working and it's sort of crippling them in a way. Obviously, they can still beat the easier opposition well enough, but uh, those mid-tier or higher sides, they're really having a lot of trouble with. Yeah, and I still think they rely on too few to have big games to get the job done. Um, I can't remember what this stat is exactly, but I think since early 2021, when Paddy Cripps has had less than 20 touches, Colton have only won twice, I think, or once, one of those, and... Like it doesn't Most, happen too often. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a case of stop Cripps, stop Carlton. It, it's very obvious, and yeah, they've got some good forwards there. But yeah, he's stopping the supply. It's you go a long way to beating them. Yeah, I've heard a few people talking about you know how they're using their tall forwards in Mackay and Kerno. You know, are they giving them the best chance and all this sort of stuff? And yeah. you know, are they getting to the right spots? But yeah, it's uh, – I guess like when you've got such good targets for the ball, you'd think that would be even more incentive to get the ball moving as quick as possible. And if there's some open field in front of you, you'd just be taking it. But doesn't quite seem to be uh, connecting with the players if that's what Voss is trying to get them to do. Yeah, and I really worried about their ability to handle the pressure when it was ramped up on Friday. 
they literally just lost. Some of these kicks they were trying to pull off were just <laughs> yeah, they were bizarre. Uh, the, the Adam Saad one when he went across the ground, I just oh, he's a much better user of the ball than that. But it's like a contagious effect. Um, the confidence levels. Yeah. I just thought that was a it was a setback. Definitely a setback. I mean, Brisbane were very good, but yeah, it was a, yeah. And that's the other side of the equation. Has anything you've seen uh, in the last few weeks made you reassess Brisbane anyway? Because they do have, uh, you know, a few guys they haven't had in previous years, a little bit more depth through the midfield with Dunkley and Ashcroft mm. and uh, the forwards are putting on good pressure and even some of the defensive stuff is starting to look a little bit better as well. So perhaps uh, Brisbane are doing a bit right as well. Yeah, I think it's more of a case of, some very minor tweaks that needed to be made rather than, uh, you know, sweeping change. But some of these pieces they've added have been really impressive and uh, even Gunston coming in for more experience up forward, it's, it's helped out a bit. It, I'm still not 100% sold on them as premiership contenders, but I do see the change and they're not relying on some. They've almost had the problem that Carlton have right now, I feel, with, when they were relying heavily on Lockie Neal to get big numbers, but they're taking a step in the right direction, I reckon. It's, it's interesting that they've had such a great record at the Gabba, you know, over the last three or four years, but when they've actually had a chance to play finals there, it really hasn't helped them that much. I, I guess maybe it's just because finals is a different game and different type of pressure, but you'd expect for a team that basically never loses at home to have a better finals record there, and it just hasn't turned out that way. Yeah, and that's a strange one because you've got a pretty good sample size now of that. And, <laughs> uh, did, they, did they win one? They there? beat Richmond yeah. there a couple of times. That's in, right. Yeah, but they weren't the knockout finals. They were like the uh, one of them. No, I think they were both qualifying finals. From that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were both uh, in the first week. But yeah, I mean, it's a plus coming down to Melbourne beating you know a reasonable side in Carlton. I wouldn't say an A grade side, but a reasonable side. Um, yeah, they're on the right track. Uh, it'd be interesting to see who they've got next week, actually. I'll just look that up. <laughs> they've got Essendon next week at the Gabba. So, I mean, it's hard to get a grading on Essendon at the moment, but they can only play who they're playing. So yeah, absolutely. it be interesting to see. So, yeah, just to finish on Carlton, they're 4-4 and 1 with a very tough month ahead. And, yeah, it's not going to get not going to get easier from here on out. No, I think the next, yeah, out of the next five, would they start favourites in any of those games? Like they've got Collingwood, Melbourne, uh, the they might be Sydney in there. in there, dogs. I yeah. don't think they would. It'll be, be it'll be a tough run, but uh, see how they go, I suppose. I mean, the Sydney, I think, is in three or four weeks. They might have a shot there. I'm not sure where it's played, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Sydney have been struggling a little bit, of course. Yeah, could be an interesting yes. game. <laughs> So we'll move on to our next topic, uh, and this one's a real interesting topic, I think. When will teams learn that they cannot protect their lead against Collingwood, Dan? It's, it's, <laughs> it's fun to hate Collingwood, and it's a favourite pastime for everyone, but um, I, I, I do find that there's a bit of an attitude with uh, fans. They, they still don't quite rate them. They still think they're only just getting the job done, but what do you, what do you think? Is, is, this is a, a force to be reckoned with, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Like just some of these surges they've gone on, uh, especially this year, just had me thinking like, you know, 
if you're playing Collingwood, basically no matter what the score is, you'll always have more, you know, tension in the body. Like if they can do this, nothing's stopping them essentially at the moment from, you know, overturning four or five goal leads at three quarter time. And like, that's, that's scary for the opposition. Like you can have done a lot right. And I guess the reason I sort of pose this question is I think the opposition are almost helping Collingwood a little bit in these last quarters by being that little bit more conservative, going away from what got them there and just sort of protecting their lead. It's just giving Collingwood more opportunities really to do what they do and throw the ball into chaos and get things moving their way. And then it's kind of this self-fulfilling thing. The opposition sort of knows they're going to come and Collingwood knows they're going to come and they just sort of get the momentum and just ride it through. But I think you've got to find a way to try and stand up to that a little bit. Like Mm. even if you've got a five goal lead, you're not safe. So why not actually just try and score, you know, two or three more goals and just knock, knock them out. I think we talked, we might've mentioned this, you know, last year, like you Mm. have to knock Collingwood out. They're not going to knock themselves out. And you know, yeah. that, that game, maybe not the Adelaide one. Who was it? Who, who was the other big comeback against? I guess the Adelaide uh, one. Sorry. Uh, the Anzac Day, Essendon. Yeah, Essendon. Like, I think Essendon were a little bit out on their feet. They lost basically yeah. every stat. So that's probably not a great example. But you're not going to beat Collingwood by playing a conservative last quarter. At least that's my take. <laughs> they have this method down to an absolute T at the moment. And everything seems to work in their favour, I reckon. And it's, I don't think any team is altering the thinking of opposition teams as much as Collingwood right now, because you've literally got the situation now where a Sydney is in that position. They're playing well early. They're getting a whole lot of the ball, but they're almost under more pressure because they have to nail pretty much all the chances that they get. And if they miss a few, it's almost like the doubts creeping in. I don't know if it's, creeping for them but for me watching that yesterday I thought oh <laughs> uh, yeah Collingwood's the favorite right now <laughs> like yeah it was it, they're doing so many things that are just unheard of I think the main thing is look it comes back to Nick Dacos but this guy is altering the selection of pretty much every team at the moment you've got teams that play the most system-based approach now thinking about getting guys to run with him. And Sydney brought Ryan Clark in just to do that job. And it's, yeah, everyone's just reactive at the moment. And we were kind of all reacting to what, yeah. what Colin was bringing up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been some examples in Collingwood games, especially the one they lost against Brisbane, where, you know, if you do get through their sort of press where they're, uh, you know, wingers and halfbacks come up to the contest, then you actually get an outnumber forward of the ball. So if you can win some of those critical contests, you're definitely in a show for scoring quite freely as Brisbane did in that game. But mm. it's almost like you do have to play a bit of a different way to actually, you know, against Collingwood as what you would play against anyone else, which I can imagine is quite off-putting. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's looking like the holy grail now at the moment, beating Collingwood, and they're very hard to beat. And I can see why teams are going into their shell when they've got a bit of a lead. But yeah, do you agree with yeah. that sentiment though? That like, if if this was all being played like on a computer, you wouldn't be setting your team setting to conservative against Collingwood in the last quarter. <laughs> there's times 
there's times when I would do that. Like I'm not saying the conservative thing is uh, completely useless in all situations, but I just don't think it's going. I think it's exactly what they want. They want the team they're playing to um, to sort of withdraw a bit and uh, chip it round and things like. They want that to happen because they can. They just back the they back their side to get the ball back and hit it you almost- on the counter. It almost makes it more demoralizing when you're playing conservatively and then, you know, Collingwood do their thing and just find space and make some miraculous play and get a goal. It makes it hurt even more because you've almost sort of set them up for it in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, yeah, I still don't quite know how this system works, but, you know, they've had injury after injury. Cameron McStay, Cox, they stick Billy Frampton in the ruck and, you know, not only do they win the hit-out count 46 to 19 in this game, but they won the clearances plus five. So it's just so hard to explain this being more than, you know, it's not just a good luck story. Like They seem to have this system and method that gets results and a next man up mentality, uh, almost sort of like not, not the similar um, playing style, but kind of similar to the philosophy that Ross Lyon had when he first came to St Kilda, that it was, um, it, this is the system and, it's, you know, whoever's in there does the job kind of thing. Yeah, it does seem to be not completely independent of players, like the players you got on the park, obviously, but it does seem to be able to cover uh, certain absences more than some other teams' uh, game plans for sure. And I guess, like, if it's based on, you know, getting numbers to the source and, you know, just creating uh, hurt on rebound, like you can sort of see why it wouldn't be that dependent on, uh, you know, having all your guys out there because, you know, if you've got an out number anywhere on the field, more often than not, you're going to win that contest. And it's kind of, from my understanding of it, they're just trying to create the out number in as many Mm. positions on the ground as possible, even if it means leaving a few guys free in the opposition's forward line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sydney scored one point from stoppage in this game, Dan. When does that ever happen? With the Swans. <laughs> well, they're doing something right here. And uh, Darcy Moore's really grown with the captaincy. He dominated Buddy on this day. 11 rebound, 50 disposals. Uh, yeah, he's really relished uh, the captaincy, I think. And they've got some great leadership out there already in Pendlebury and Sidebottom. Uh, Jack Crisp, those guys. But, yeah, I think that's also a big part of it too. They've got the leadership there to really just steady the ship when it's needed. Yeah, they seem to have an extremely good understanding of what they're doing. And I heard a little bit about uh, what Nick Dacos was sort of saying after the game about getting tagged. And, you know, I guess they would have talked through this extensively. Mm. And he had, you know, the wherewithal to, you know, come up to the contest and create the outnumber where Collingwood sort of wanted it by, you know, going to another player and sort of confusing Sydney a bit. And I guess that helped Collingwood, uh, you know, get who they wanted in the right spot in a way to get the ball away with some hurt out of some of those contests. Well, they were ready for it, weren't they? Like they, it was looked like they'd planned for this scenario. And uh, as soon as they saw Clark on him, you know, all his teammates were getting behind him, sort of shepherding him at, at points and, not just sort of standing there and letting him do his thing, Clark. Uh, he's a very switched-on coach, Craig McRae. I think he, he he's um he's onto those things and yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was probably a situational training thing, even. And it it sounds like this is a very switched-on guy in his second year, Nick Dacos, who can you know take all that in and you know make it work in real time. And obviously, he's got a few other guys through the midfield who can help him. But 
yeah, it's very impressive that a guy in his second year can uh, have another string to the bow. Even when he's getting tagged, he sort of knows a way to, you know, help his team, even if it's not him getting the ball. Yeah, and I'm sure they'd much rather, or I'm sure he'd much rather take the win than uh, another 40 possession game if he goes. (laughs) Yeah, he'll have plenty of those over the journey. Oh, he certainly will. (laughs) Uh, So moving on to big games, Josh Dunkley actually achieved the quadruple double on Friday night. 22 kicks, 11 handballs, 11 marks, 13 tackles. Is this the true measure of a perfect game? I know a lot of people get sort of sucked into the the stats trying to, you know, speak for the game. Is this as close as you can get to the measure of a perfect game, Dan? When you've got a guy winning a heap of the ball and, you know, the tackles are up really high, I think that always says a lot because, you know, it's quite often if you're like really high in the tackles, your possession count might be a bit down or vice versa. So I think the combination of those two is a, a great measure. It'd be interesting to see what his uh, score involvements were as well. But uh, mm. yeah, it just sounds like he was everywhere, you know, putting the pressure on, get, being the, getting the outlet kicks and just winning the ball himself. And yeah, you know, hurting Carlton in an area where they are struggling a bit at the moment through the midfield. Yeah, only eight players have done this in the stats era. Um, and, yeah, I was just thinking about it because I spoke with um, Dave about this last year on the show, uh, what what would be the AFL equivalent uh, of yeah, the yeah. NBA triple-double, yeah. <laughs> and I just think that, yeah, I agree with you. I think this one kind of covers the bases. You've got the defensive side, you've got the offensive side. Um, yeah, you, you know, Marks is also there. And um, the only thing it, it doesn't do – and you wouldn't have known if you just looked at this is it doesn't really take into account the amazing game that he played on Paddy Cripps. I mean, <laughs> he played on him all night and Cripps had 17 possessions. So yeah, he's that, done the job as well. I suppose like disposal efficiency as well, but I suppose they yeah. don't really like the equivalent in the NBA, the shot like efficiency that wouldn't come into it, would it? So I guess no, not quite, no. it's a bit of a different measure, more about accumulation. Yeah, that's right. And just to answer your question before, if he had four score involvements and 61% efficiency. All right, so, so not great, but uh, not yeah. Like but look, <laughs> but uh, uh, the numbers look good. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, I'd actually, just before we move on, I'd actually like to just read out the other seven players that have had quadruple doubles. Yeah, go for it. Let's so, see. Scotty Thompson. Uh, Former Melbourne, obviously, but uh, the majority of his career at Adelaide. Round 9, 2008 was the first one to get the... So that would have been for Adelaide, right? For Adelaide, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Second was Joel Selwood in 2009. Next was Brent Stanton of the Bombers, round 19, 2011. He was a good accumulator, remember? Very good accumulator, yes. Ben McGlynn in 2014 for the Swans. Bit of a surprising one. Yeah, a bit bit surprising. Uh, Tommy Rockliffe, round 2014 at the Lions. Not that uh, surprising. <laughs> not that uh, he could get a lot of it. He could wrap Corey Enright, round 6, 2015. And this one's really surprised me. Carl Eamon at Port last year in round 15. Okay. Nice one. Yeah. So yeah, some real list. diversity in that list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a, a, a rare feat. So, yeah, no, well done to Josh Dunkley and certainly helped his team get the win. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. So Tim Taranto and Jacob Hopper may have departed the GWS Giants, but did they back the winner in 
sticking with Tom Green and giving him a long-term contract. Could he be better than both, Dan? I bet you could make the argument he already is. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think like, so too. Yeah. I think we spotted, and a lot of people did, you know, Tom Green really quite early on and just his ability to, you know, be strong in the contest, his size and, you know, usually pretty good disposal efficiency. He just had that real like sort of instinctual uh, football smarts right from the get-go and he's obviously only got better from then and, yeah, he's uh, definitely gone to another level this year. Yeah, these are some pretty good numbers. 38 touches, six marks, nine tackles, three goals, almost single-handedly getting the Giants across the line. Uh, I love watching this guy play, Dan. I think that he's very much in that mould of, uh, you know, Bontempelli, Cripps, Oliver, and it's kind of a mandatory requirement in the AFL if you want to get anywhere and have a shot at success. You need to have that big-bodied midfielder that can win a centre clearance, when, especially when the game's in the balance. So, yeah, it seems that they've got one for a few years. So the other thing is he's actually from Canberra. So in a club that's trying to still forge its own identity – I think it's a good move to to go with him and uh, help build the the culture with I guess you probably wouldn't call it homegrown talent, but you know from the area. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good sign. Yeah, absolutely, and it does look like you know a guy who could be captain in the future. I guess mm. Toby Green isn't the youngest now, but uh, no rush to get it onto him. But yeah, definitely uh, has the capacity there. I think at some point in the future. Yeah, absolutely, and look, I guess it'd be silly to not mention this game, or to mention this game, and to not mention Marcus Bontepelli's game, which was sensational. And do you think, do you reckon he's leading the brand at the moment, Dan? Well, it'd be pretty close between him and Nick Dacos. There's probably yeah, not a would. heap of players taking it away from Nick Dacos at Collingwood just because they get such an even spread, and he's usually one of the ones that stands out. But, yeah, he'd be right up there, the Bont. Seems yeah, I mean, to have increased his uh, hurt out of stoppages as well. So he's yes. uh, probably relishing a little bit more uh, responsibility. Not that he didn't have responsibility before, but, you know, without Dunkley, he's probably carrying a little bit more of the load there. He's definitely attending more centre bounces. I think I checked it. I think he had 80% attendance at centre bounces in this okay, game. That's, and yeah, it's very high. <laughs> he's loving it. Yeah, I think he's really relishing that. And really, his game was sensational as well. I think he had 32 possessions and a goal, but it looked like Tom Green's uh, game with three goals just maybe eclipsed that a bit. But both really good displays. Really good displays. Okay, let's move on to this one. I saved this one for a bit later because there's a bit to discuss on this. But who could or should be the AFL's 20th team, Dan? Mm, yeah, interesting. And maybe should should there be a twentieth team? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I suppose like it almost seemed like a bit of a foregone conclu- conclusion that uh, Tassie would be getting the team for a fair while. Yes. Uh, you know, the last month or so. So, I guess my mind wandered to other possibilities. Like, yep. Really, yep. you don't get a lot of benefit of bringing in a nineteenth team without no. a twentieth, right? Because What's going to happen? Misses you know, the fixture up. Yeah. yeah, buy every week, or you just you're not getting the extra game, really. So, yeah, where I suppose it's probably going to they're looking at the timelines for all this. Like there will be a period where we probably will only have 19 teams, but I can imagine the AFL would 
want to move to 20. I don't really mm. see any reason why they wouldn't. Um, do you see any reason why they wouldn't want oh, to go I think, to 20? I think if, if Tassie came in and they went to 19, I think the logical step would be, be to go to 20. But it's, yeah, look, I've got my own views on this one. Look, I think Tasmania yeah, deserved their own team. No doubt about that. And it's been a great news that that's going to happen. Uh, but it's no guarantee for success. I mean, you know, what's the population of Hobart? Like just over 100,000. Uh, the stadium that they're going to build will be, what, 25,000, I think. Look, I think they're going about it the right way. But uh, it's still another risk, especially in a competition where there's two other clubs that are still being supported quite a bit from the AFL. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... It, it it is something that needs to happen. I think, in my opinion, even if the AFL lost a, a bit of money on it, I think bringing Tasmania in is a worthwhile experiment. But going to twenty teams, I kind of I do wonder if if we're ready for that as a population, like, and if the talent pool can support it. That's the other thing. Yeah, is the talent and, there? Yeah, and I, I've read a lot about this in the last week, and I haven't seen anyone put forward a very good case for who the twentieth team would be. Everything just seems kind of like table talk and pub talk, even from <laughs> highly respected media people. And, you know, you're hearing things like Canberra, like Darwin, uh, you know, a couple of uh, areas out near Margaret River, which I actually thought was probably the most likely. But, um, yeah, it, at the end of the day, it is a business and it's got to be viable. And just some of these ideas, I just didn't think that they were going to be very viable going into the future. You know, we want the competition to be a good standard. I, I do still wonder if the Gold Coast is, well, is has been a success, and if that could have just been the new Tassie team, yeah. keep it at eighteen yeah. for a bit. But look, eventually, like expansion is inevitable. I'm just not sure if we we're ready for it quite yet. But uh, yeah, well, there what, is another five you, years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and look, yeah, it's. It's a conundrum because, as you said, if you've got 19 teams, it doesn't do anything really. It doesn't actually help the AFL. They're not going to make any extra revenue out of uh, – there's not like an extra game each week to make no. revenue out of. Um, the gather round principle doesn't even work <laughs> with 19 <laughs> teams. So it does make sense that they'd try and get it even. But, yeah, I was a bit I was a bit sceptical on this. I just thought, why would you bring in a 20th team for the sake of fixturing and <laughs> making a – making it easy on the fixture. I would rather see a good case, a strong case for a 20th team that, you know, is ready for it. Yeah. I suppose my thinking on it, like I hadn't really thought about it in depth really. And like there's the talent argument is definitely a valid one, I think. Mm. But like if, if, if you said the talent was there, I think the opportunity would be ripe to add another team basically as a city-based team in either – in either WA or South Australia, we know 100%. we know they're the you know the large markets for the game outside Victoria, and uh, I think especially WA, but probably yes. even SA. Yeah, adding an yeah, extra both. team there would actually, and obviously don't have any of the sums on this, but you would imagine that would be a money maker in terms of expansion. Whereas you know the more recent ones have been. Uh, a little bit more having to be propped up by the AFL. So I think there's definitely the appetite for more football in those cities. Definitely. And this is why I like the idea of the sort of Margaret River region a bit because I can't remember what 
I think there's uh, like Bunbury or Bustleton, those kinds of towns all combined is actually the same population as Hobart. So, yeah, it's not it's not out of the question. And if the talent pool was there, yeah, I'd be a lot more excited of the of the prospect. But yeah, I'm all about having a good standard of game and. Yeah, yeah, you just absolutely. don't want that talent going too thin. Yeah, it's a good story, like, you know, a team like Port Adelaide coming in from the local comp and, you know, making it work in the AFL, and they're sort of unique in that way. I guess Fremantle probably did something similar in a way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. West Coast kind of did as well. It just, um, yeah, absolutely. Just to me, it seems a little strange that, you know, we've got Queensland with two teams, uh, you know, New South Wales with two teams, and you've still got, you know, these sort of footy heartlands that have relatively big populations in SA and WA yeah. sitting at two. I think eventually, even if it doesn't happen, you know, that soon, eventually they're probably going to have at least one of those markets will go to three. Yeah, yeah. And look, like I said, if the temple's there, would like nothing more. Um, but we've had this discussion, but well, not this exact discussion before, but You've spent some time in Queensland and in Brisbane. Uh, what is your take on the state of the game up there and Gold Coast? Like, is it worth per- persisting with? The AFL seems extremely committed to it. And, uh, you know, I think Brisbane is always going to be rugby league heartland, really. So it's just whether, you know, in that market you can sustain two AFL teams. And, like, Brisbane has its own foothold and, you know, they've got enough supporters yeah. and enough enough interest there. I just don't think Gold Coast was really the right spot to put a team, like, full stop, even if it's not, yeah. you know, uh, a footy state. So, I don't know. If they were better, would they get more guys, more, more people turning up? Maybe. But it's it's going to be... It's going to be a hard, long road for Gold Coast. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd hope that they can stick it out for a while. But uh, I suppose, you know, long-term future is always going to be the question mark. But, uh, yeah, from what I'd seen when I was there, I didn't feel like the appetite was really there for a second team. So, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think the AFL made the right decision by putting a team on the Gold Coast. But, uh, mm. you know, that's just my two cents. I'm sure there'd be people who'd be who'd been disagreeing with me there. And, you know, you could argue that GWS was even more of a reach, but uh, I think that has been more successful. I don't know a lot about that, but, you know, being able to split between, you know, Canberra and GWS and, you know, obviously Sydney is a much bigger city, uh, more more of the pie to go around. Uh, Yeah, I I guess they wanted to get a team, another team in Queensland and Gold Coast kind of seemed like the obvious spot, but... uh, yeah, where, where do you sit on this, Johnny? Is Gold Coast going to yeah. make it make it it's, in the long haul here? <laughs> it's just been such a long time. I mean, this is what year thirteen, and yeah, you just still see those crowds, and they're not real. It doesn't look like they're growing. Um, yeah, one thing yeah. with the crowds. Whenever I went there, and it might be a little bit different now, but usually, you know, there was more Melbourne supporters there than Gold Coast supporters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's always been a weird one because I have heard over time that there is a somewhat of a niche following of Aussie rules on the Gold Coast, but it's very fragmented and mm. it doesn't look like it in Carrara or whatever. But then you hear stories about Southport Sharks and that's actually a, quite a good footy club and uh, like 
I don't know. It just seems very it's very spread out and few and far between. I think the the interest and yeah, I, I don't know. At the end of the day, when it came to bring getting Tassie in, I just looked at all the possibilities and thought. You know, there's always going to be those people that say things like, oh, just relocate north or whatever. <laughs> I think the Victorian clubs need, like, I think history should be protected. If there's 150 years of history versus 13 years of history, I think, you know, it's got to stand for something. So I don't think any Victorian clubs should go. And I just thought the simplest solution would be to to wander it up and just say that, you know, it's been fun. <laughs> mm. But... You know, is it realistically going to work? I mean, obviously success might help if they get, you know, if they finally make finals and win a flag, that might change things. But how far away is that? Yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like the AFL's completely pot competed and I don't know what would have to happen for them to actually, you know, change their mind. I think they're going to give it, well, it's already been 13 years. They're going to give it 25 years and, yeah. you know, I don't know what the tipping point would be, but... I think even if things don't improve, we're still a while away from any uh, any type of conversation where Gold Coast would be threatened in terms of their existence. I talked about um, Tom Green before being sort of a, I guess, a local product in you know ACT and well, Greater West Sydney, I guess you could say, uh, and how that's good for your your culture. Like um, Jack Bowers, who went to Geelong this year. He he's a native Gold Coast kid, and I think having someone like that develop and go forward with the the Suns would have been a, a really good thing. But they weren't able to do that, and they ended up having to that mismanage that situation, and they ended up having to trade him and trade out a pick to whoever wanted to make the trade. It's just been a debacle in the way it's been managed. And yeah, if the AFL was so hell bent on making it work, then you know, how do they keep allowing him to get away with these things? Yeah, I don't know, really. Yeah. They have made a heap of mistakes over the time and it looks like it's getting a little bit better now, but, yeah. you know, yeah, we still does, don't really does. have, we still don't have a heap of evidence to show that they're like fully going in the right direction, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, it is, it's a weird thing that you can sort of just have this new team that is in there and just sort of plodding along and, no one really seems to pay that much attention. It just in terms of you know whether it's you know whether it's working or whether it's been a good investment or you know whether we should keep persisting. It's just sort of this this thing. It's just like oh yeah, that's Gold Coast. Yeah, okay. What else going yeah. on? <laughs> yeah, it's um yeah. Look, you know, I guess you know you're happy to give it a bit more time, but you know it's just when you look at these these states like Tassie who are desperate for this. You yeah, know, you just wonder if it's, you know, is is the limelight being hogged yeah. a bit? But yeah, look. Yeah, we'll I think that goes back to like right at the start. Like, why did they actually put a team on the Gold Coast? Like, did they have, you know, evidence that yeah. there was actually the, the want research. for a team, or did they just see, you know, a growth region and think, yeah, you know, we can make this work? It's yeah. sort of. I think we've talked about this a little bit before. To me, it seemed like a very arrogant decision to yeah. think that they could make Gold Coast work and... It seemed arrogant. Yeah. It did. Yeah. But, you know... They did it and they can do it. They got enough money, I suppose. <laughs> like, yeah, like even at that point, I think it would have made more sense to go to 
maybe you know three teams in WA than going. Yeah. But they want they want it to be a national competition and they want to you know spread it far and wide. And funnily enough, looking at some of the numbers of footy time, there's actually more listeners in Queensland than there are in WA and SA. So there you go. Yeah, interesting. Growth region. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, I guess this has been the perfect lead-in to the next segment, which does involve the Gold Coast Suns. Uh, it's, I guess it was the match of the round, the Suns versus the Ds. Um, it was an absolute crazy game, but what do we make of it? Like, was Melbourne just a bit off in this one, Dan, or was it just a great, a truly great football game against a side that was better than a lot of us think? Yeah, well, I've heard it described as Gold Coast's best game in their history. I think that's probably a little bit of hyperbole, but it gives mm. you a sense of how much they were up for this. They were dominating the clearances and the contested possession basically all the way through. Really, I guess Melbourne kind of yeah. got on top in that last quarter, but they threw everything they had at Melbourne. And yeah, the stuff forward of the ball could have been a little bit clear, cleaner, but they were finding ways to score. And uh, yeah, every time that Melbourne looked like they were going to pull away, uh, Gold Coast were right back in it. So I thought... Yeah, obviously Melbourne did make some mistakes and there were a few things they could have done better, but I cha- I sort of changed my tune on that pretty quickly as I started to digest it. And I think Gold Coast just played a very good game and they're not easy to beat up there in those, you know, bit of dewy conditions. And, you know, the bodies are there, you know, players are getting a little bit more seasoned now. They're just not that easy to play. They play a hard contested uh, game of footy and uh, when they're up for it, they can make things pretty difficult, especially at Carrara. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I thought they played a really, really good game. And yeah, at first, and look, you know, they were Melbourne at their best. No, they probably weren't. But I heard some people saying that it was a putrid performance by Melbourne and it was, you know, disgraceful and they you know, were way <laughs> off it and not going to win against good teams playing that way. And, look, I understand those opinions, but I just think that this game was – that's the wrong way to look at this game. And, you know, there were so many times when we threatened to pull away, but the Suns just really hung in. And just some of these guys who stood up when a candle, like Casbolt, Scholl, uh, I thought McPherson actually played a really good game. And Noah Anderson, this was the best game I've ever seen him play. I thought he really came of age. Rail was fantastic in those stoppage situations and just getting that, you know. Yeah, quick... he was the great extractor, wasn't he? Oh, no matter where fantastic. the ball was, he was finding a way to get it out. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this, there's every chance that Rail and Anderson could become their Oliver and Petrarca. Uh, I think that... It was a really good sign. Jared Witz is a much better ruckman than a lot of people give him credit for. I mean, I think people know that he's good, but he still doesn't quite get the credit he deserves. I mean, he's not, you know, Max Gorn level of tap ruckman, but, you know, he does the job. He's an honest competitor and he made it very hard for Gordon Grundy all night. They really yeah, couldn't did. get on top of him. They did, yeah. He stood firm. Um, yeah, and, and some of these other performances I thought were really good. Sam Collins, I thought, did a reasonable job. Um. Yeah, Ballard yeah. was good before he Ball, went off. Ballard was good. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Bailey Humphrey looks like he could be a player. I mean, there's some real talent 
going through that midfield and a lot of skill there. And when they had position, it was actually really hard to get position back from them. Yeah, that was one yeah. of the things that stood out to me, just like the skill level of some of their guys. I thought Will Power coming out of the back line really was really good. good. Love so, this like, game, yeah. They've got a lot of pieces and like, you know, if they can just get the game a little bit more in sync, I think they've got a lot of potential. But, you know, we've been... Talking about Gold Coast potential, not us, but, you know, the footy industry for a long time. But, yeah, yeah, just to see it all clicking a little bit more, it was impressive. And I don't think Melbourne did a lot wrong in this game. Like, in terms of, you know, the effort, it was there. Maybe they weren't, you know, absolutely as ferocious at the contest as they could have been. Maybe a little down on forward pressure. Yeah. Yeah. it, it was it was most most of what they were trying to do was there. Gold yeah. Coast just weren't making things easy. Yeah, and backs played a really good game to keep Bailey Fritch to a handful of positions. Is yeah, there's not many teams that have been able to do that lately. And yeah, we had to work for our goals. I thought, yeah, if if the Suns could have gotten up in this one, it would have done wonders for them as a group, I reckon. And look, it still will do, but yeah. Yeah, I felt like, I don't know whether it was just in the third quarter, but there was definitely, I felt like there was a bit of, you know, uh, interstate umpiring decisions going on for a while there. It seemed like they were getting every every call. I think it evened up a little bit in the last quarter and, you know, people say Melbourne got a couple of good calls toward the end of the game. But uh, Yeah, I've heard a few people say that. There was was a few in that third quarter in particular where it looked like uh, they might have got a few fortuitous ones that ended up in goals or just like, you know, really uh, helping them out a fair bit. Yeah, it was, a, it was, I've just found this to be a real polarizing game with people <laughs> having just vast, vastly different opinions on the, how it went down and who was good and who wasn't good. And uh, yeah, like you said, I thought there were some moments where the umpiring went either way, but I, I remember just hearing before uh, someone saying that, Gold Coast got robbed of a few free kicks late. They thought Shoal had a few. And, yeah, at the end of the day, I thought the Suns were really, really good. And if they won, they would have deserved it. But I didn't see this as a bad win for Melbourne. I thought I was pretty happy with it. I thought the job got done. Maybe maybe that shot at the end from McPherson was a bit lucky, but I wouldn't say that they were lucky in this game. They no. had the composure when it counted. Let's talk a little bit about last quarter because I guess that was where it all sort of came to a head. And, you know, Melbourne's been very good in last quarters this year so far. Mm. And they really came out strong in that last quarter. Uh, getting They were actually able to get a bit of dominance through the ruck. And uh, I think Petrarca and Oliver definitely went to another level in that last quarter. Winning some, in, winning some important stoppages and uh, getting it going Melbourne's way and uh, sort of surging and, you know, getting players in space. And they only did kick the two goals, but they had plenty more chances, particularly, you know, getting the ball on pretty open plays to Fritch. And for once, the goal-kicking radar was off. Yeah, and that's that set shot that he had uh, on his side oh, as well. Yeah. I mean, that could have buried the game then and there. So I yeah, guess what was he? Look, he was about 25 out, maybe 30. Yeah, yeah and look. On a bit that, of an angle. We, we did let, let them hang around a little, but... Uh, yeah, look, these things happen. You're not going to yeah, play flawless games all the time. I felt like with Fritch, he sort of lost his confidence on that first one where he was about 45 out, like on a bit of an angle. Like yeah. He didn't quite hit that one right. And then the next two, he definitely didn't look as sure of it. And, you know, that 
sort of characteristic Fritch uh, sort of fade that goes to the left when yeah, he used the, to kick yeah. poorly. That was he missed all of them to the left, I think. So, yeah. It was really, there a bit of a breeze? I felt like there was maybe. a bit of a swirling breeze at Could one point. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it obviously makes a huge difference when you can uh, bin your shots at goal in the last quarter. And even looking at where Gold Coast got their two goals in the last quarter, they were basically direct Melbourne errors mm. in like horrid positions on yes. the ground. So the first one was Cozzy gathering about 40 metres out and inexplicably, I guess, he misses a handball target by about two metres and basically a Gold Coast guy picks it up and runs into goal and that was one. And then the next one, Melbourne gets it deep in defence and Rivers takes slightly too long to get yeah. the ball off and... That gets it's, smothered and uh, like ricochets out to Anderson. Yeah, yeah, Anderson. So that it was looked too, a bit lucky. Yeah. Like some of these things looked like lucky bounces, but at the end of the day, the Suns kind of created that luck with that yeah, pressure they were putting yeah. on. Yeah, they were definitely putting on the pressure, but to turn the ball over in those positions in your back line, it's yeah, that was basically two gifts. So uh, it was really that's what kept it close, I suppose. Like some people would say, Gold Coast should have won this game, but. I think Melbourne definitely had more chances and played yeah. the better last quarter. The Suns still stood up and uh, gave themselves a chance, but really they didn't actually, you know, create many scores in that last quarter off their own sort of play rather than other than just surging it in there and, you know, locking it in and sort of letting Melbourne make a few horrid mistakes. They didn't yeah. really create much. It worked to good effect, but... um. Yeah, look, I thought our back line was a little bit down in this one. They did get outmarked a few times early on. And, uh, yeah, when it hits the deck, that's a bit of an issue. It, it There's a way that we're defending in transition at the moment where it just – and this happened a lot in the Essendon game where the, the opposition's bringing it out of the back line and they kind of take a long kick up to the wing or to the centre. And I always feel very confident if we can sort of get that – that ball to front in the square and yeah, even if it gets out of bounds or a stoppage or just anything, even if Gold Coast get possession again, I feel a lot more confident because we have that split second to set up a bit quicker. Yeah, can but stop that them at ball, that point. It, exactly, exactly. But if that ball gets out over the back, like if it just sort of scrubs out over the back and, and beats that sort of wall, I just don't feel very confident at the moment. They, it, yeah. If the opposition gets that ball, they just end up hacking one forward and we just seem to be completely wrong-footed. And Yeah, it does yeah. look very open when they can get through that. Like the milk players are there, they, but you're right, they just don't look like they're really quite set or ready for the ball to come in yet. And I just wonder as well, I'm not sure, it's really hard to tell without the down-the-ground footage, but do you kind of feel that without Petty down there, do you feel we might be playing a slightly deeper line maybe than we would usually do? Like they're sort of protecting the, the defensive 50 a bit better. I'm, yeah, I'm not too sure, but it just seemed like there's a lot more space between, I guess, centre and yeah. half back for the opposition to run into and create with. And yeah. So, so I think that's a good segue. What's what's going on with the Petty experiment? You know, some people were calling for him to be tried as a forward towards yeah. the end of last year. And we've seen it for the majority of the year so far with varied results. But yes. yeah, the back line... I don't yeah. know. It it does seem to have a petty size hole in it. <laughs> yeah, and and look, it does. Uh, look, in a perfect world, I would much prefer him to be down there, but I don't know if there's a lot of options at the moment. You, you sort of need that contesting, uh, yeah, just that contesting physical forward to, I guess, hit the pack and take the bump and you just yeah get the play moving a bit. 
So is he playing Tom McDonald's role? What role is he actually playing? I, I would have thought he was playing Team X role, yeah. Just sort of um, you know, pushing up, leading back. Yeah, maybe a little bit just, more physical than yeah, just another big body just to try and just open to split up a few pack, yeah. lanes, just yeah. to make contests. And um, I don't think he was doing too bad in that role, to be honest. But uh, yeah, it does take away significantly from the back line. And the question is, who else would play that spot right now in the forward line? Because well, obviously yes. they can bring. bring Ben Brown back in, but he's not really, you know, the most physical player, which it has no. been. I was a bit surprised to learn that Ben Brown has actually played the last two games in the VFL. And, you know, maybe yeah. they're just trying to get a, a bit of match fitness, but is he going to come back in? What's going on there? Like, I, I would love to see Ben Brown back in the side. And I thought he started the season really well, but the knock on Brown for me at the moment is he's not, apart from not being super physical and being able to get the, ball to ground and that as much as others he's not really able to do much on the defensive side of the ball and he tries his hardest but when when he's got to do some defensive chasing he really labors and I, I feel like our forward line right now just needs those guys like you see Jacob Van Rooyen like every effort is I mean, even in this yeah. we'll, we'll get to this moment in a bit <laughs> I reckon because I, I wasn't going to let this go without talking about it even in that moment you know he's just never out of a contest and yeah you can see just, it in his eyes like the want to like get to a contest for Van Royen is fantastic he just yeah. really wants to be involved in everything yeah exactly and look like I said I would love to see Ben Brown back in or, or Tom McDonald but yeah I just think the level required right now is a little bit more than what they're currently producing. I watched one of the VFL games a few weeks ago and I just thought, yeah, there's, there's probably a reason why they're there at the moment. Mm. It's tricky though, isn't it? Like, <sighs> It is. I, can we rely on, you know, this forward line structure going into finals? Like obviously they're still kicking the score, yeah. but like do you really want to be going into finals with a f- second year forward <laughs> and Petty and, you know, a bit of Max yeah. Gorn? Like is Not that really, really going to get the job done? Like maybe, but... I don't know. It's it, it highly have a few speculative. Worried. <laughs> highly speculative. Yeah. So hopefully one of those guys can get back in, and yeah, we just as long as there's enough forward pressure, I think the way Ben Brown was playing before uh, the, the I think it was the back injury, wasn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I thought our, our tweaked style of just moving it quick, getting it, you know, through the middle, it was suiting him a lot better than it was yeah. last year. And having said all this, like I think they've still scored the most points in the competition, or yes, at least top yes, two. Exactly. So, like, With a, it's far from you know diabolical, but it just doesn't look quite right. And maybe no, maybe the maybe no. the coaches can see something we can't and know that what they're working towards. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it'll all just work, and it it is working. So maybe we just have to be a little bit less picky about everything. <laughs> And look, yeah, I mean, we just played round eight, so there's going to be opportunities. I'm confident there would be opportunities for Ben Brown, Tom McDonald. They'll they'll have their chance, I think. And yeah, when they get it, they just have to take it with both hands. Um, so we touched on that before with Jacob Van Royen and the uh, spoiling incident with uh, Charlie Ballard. Uh, he wasn't concussed. He did get stretched off, and. Yeah, it was it was a freak incident. But what what did you think of this, Dan? <laughs> it was obviously a little bit late coming back. Yeah, he wanted you know to give every chance he had to try and actually you know 
spoil the ball or, you know, just have any any chance of locking it in the forward line for Melbourne. And, you know, it was to me, it's a football act. He's trying yeah. to spoil the ball. He's not trying to do anything else. Maybe he doesn't have his eyes fully on the ball because of the way he's moving and, you know, trying to read the cues of, you know, Ballard's hands for where the ball's actually going to be. But you know, it's, it's incidental contact. You cannot... You can't get all injuries out of the game just because you make a rule and say, you know, okay, if uh, if the other guy gets injured, then you're going to be rubbed out. You can't get rid of all these incidents from the game that, where people can get injured. It's just not possible. You can't mm, penalize a, a guy for, you know, trying to spoil the ball. Like, I don't quite get that. Like... I'm all for trying to protect players and, you know, duty of care, yeah. But if you're trying to, you know, win the ball or prevent the other guy getting the ball and that's all you're trying to do, then I think you've got to wear, you know, the consequences of that. Obviously, no one wants to see someone stretch it off, but he wasn't injured, at least, you know, from my understanding of what's come back in the injury report. And even if he was, like, there's no intent there to hurt Ballard. That's my two cents anyway. Yeah, look, Ju said that he'll, he's expecting him to play this week. So, yeah, I mean, there's a few things to this. Firstly, when I saw it, I didn't think a lot of it at the time, but when I saw it, I thought, gee, that, that, was some, that almost looked a little bit like Jonathan Brown just coming out of nowhere <laughs> and, like, never giving up on a contest. And I thought, oh, look, you know, a bit unlucky. Yeah, look, a free kick, but... Geez, I love that intent. That's fantastic. Then I watched the, um, I don't know if it was the round so far or something the next day, and they talked about it. And then I, I remember just hearing the words, oh, yes, this will get review- this will get referred to the tribunal. I'm like, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> and, yeah, lo and behold, it went to the match review panel, match review officer, Michael Christian, and, yeah, so he got the two weeks. So, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure Melbourne's going to appeal this, aren't they? Yeah, that's come through. Um, definitely I'm through. really glad that they are because I think this is a little bit dangerous. Like you got this guy, you know, this young man who's come in and he's been a breath of fresh air. He's sort of still got that head bobble, you know, where you before you get too regimented in the game and you're <laughs> structured and he's just playing with like, you know, he's just playing on instinct. And it's so good to see and, you know, he's just, just giving everything, 110%. And I would just really hate it if something like this put him off and he started second-guessing things like this. And this is where I really, I just feel like the match review is doing a bit of a disservice because it's just not the true spirit of the game. Like you said, it's a football act. I thought he came over, he, for the most part, had his eyes on the ball. He tried to spoil it. He just missed it. And I thought it was more his... his I guess his bicep or his... Yeah, you can get suspended because sort of, your got, bicep gets someone. <laughs> yeah, got Ballard's head. And uh, they're talking about some other footage where it shows that he took his eye, that he's, took his eyes off the ball and looked at, at Ballard. That's not necessarily a bad thing. There's no rule that says you can't look at an opponent. Like sometimes you're looking at an opponent to, you know, gauge space and see where, you know, have your awareness of where they are. So I thought he played that really well and to get punished for it would be yeah be really disappointing and yeah, I'm glad that the club is yeah. standing up here because 
That's just silly. It's to just me, silly. To me, there's only one alternative to what Van Royen does there, and that's basically to not do it. So Let if you're market. saying if the decision comes back that, you know, he gets suspended for this, you're basically saying you can't do that. So yeah. what you what you're saying in reality is you know, you can't go back and contest that hard when you're not in a good position. So you're basically telling him to not go for the ball. Yeah, and look, there's too many precedents now to support him getting off. Like the Tom Lynch one, and we all know what happened with Paddy Cripps and uh, Archie last year, and I personally think that was worse. Uh, It was almost like a flying Superman elbow. And (laughs) look, it wasn't totally... um, it wasn't totally dirty, but I, he, Archie got concussed and Cripps ended up getting off and winning the Brownlow. So if this is upheld, there's something seriously wrong with the system, I think. And, yeah, I'd be really, really disappointed if it was. Well, let's hope for a, a decent outcome. But, you know, for the fact that it even gets this far, then, uh, yeah, I guess it prompts this conversation. But it also is a bit of a window into the way some of the things are being interpreted at the AFL in terms of, you know, if a player is getting injured or, you know, has the capacity to cause injury. Hmm. The other thing that doesn't really get talked about enough these days is the the victim player, I guess we'll call him. Um, the, it, the art of protecting yourself seems to have been lost a bit. I'm not blaming Charlie Bellard here, but, you know, when you were a junior footballer like in our day, like, it was kind of one of the things you were told, like protect yourself at all times, you know, try and angle yeah. your body away, the body. get your backside out, you know, protect yourself. And, you know, in those days, if if you got hurt, more often than not, you didn't really get the sympathy. It was kind of like, all right, what, what did you learn from that? <laughs> yeah, protect yeah. yourself at all times, you know. Like, you just you got to, you know, fall the right way kind of thing. And I just <laughs> felt like, he kind of looked like he lacked a bit of awareness there, and I'm not blaming him, but you know, sometimes you've got to brace yourself for contact. Yeah, definitely could have, but yeah, split second thing. Maybe split he didn't realize thing, yes. didn't realize Van Ryan was coming back with quite no, that much and he force, came but quite fast. He came yeah. quite fast. I was a little bit disappointed. Don't want to put too much attention onto the media here, but I was a little bit disappointed at how many kind of narratives instantly came out from the media about what a clumsy act it was and how oh, he was definitely going to be rubbed out. And, um, yeah, I just thought uh, uh, sometimes I think they've just got to stay a bit more impartial on that stuff. <laughs> would be yeah. nice, but it is an interesting talking point, although Very probably so. a totally unnecessary one. But uh, A good clickbait talking point too. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I understand they're doing the job. <laughs> yeah, so that is all we've got time for. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on, Dan. Been a lot of fun. And we'll be back next week for more footy time. This looks like there's going to be some pretty good games this week. Um, what do we got Friday night then? We've got. I think it might be the. West Coast Cats. and Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, oh, and oh, Richmond. That's and a doubleheader. Doubleheader. doubleheader we got yeah, uh, Geelong, yes. Richmond as the first one. So. Yeah. Could be no, of interest. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So doubleheader. Okay. West Coast. Well, 6 40 p.m. Western time. Oh, okay. Yeah. It'll be later. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, interesting to see how that goes. But, uh, yeah, hope your teams do well, and we'll catch you soon. Bye for now. Bye, guys.